Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Welcome to the Friday Roundtable. Each week on this program, we dig into the big issues and ideas shaping the public conversation with Sean Spear, our editor-at-large, and Stuart Thompson, our editor-in-chief. The goal of these weekly programs is to leave you with some new analysis and insights into the week that was. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira Gluskin and Maxine Gronowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. Sean Stewart, welcome to the Roundtable. Hey, guys. Hey, great to connect, guys. Uh, Rudyard, tell, tell us about uh, your vacation. What's it like to be uh, in lovely British Columbia? Yeah, I, I got to say, this province seems, uh, at least where I am, Whistler, understandably, um, a beautiful community with a ton of infrastructure, uh, one of our big national kind of playgrounds. It's, you know, beautiful. It's beautifully run. It's beautifully kept. It's beautifully organized. Um, but I got to say, coming through Vancouver, the infrastructure, the Sea to Sky Highway, there, I don't know. I'd have to, I'm going to explore some more. I'm on Vancouver Island next week. I have a sense of uh, a tale of two provinces between Ontario, my native province, Toronto, the GTA, which seems congested, infested with, you know, construction, bike lanes, uh, you name it. Uh, I, I don't know. You it, you have a feeling out here of um, a different Canada that's uh, compared to Ontario. Yeah, it is July. It's the most beautiful time to be in BC. So maybe I would have a, a different conversation come, you know, December, January. But I don't know that this province has got a lot going for it. <laughs> maybe Rudyard's not going to come back. Uh what, what's fascinating, we'll get into a, a bunch of big topics today, but just to stay on this for one second, um, and, and it is relevant in a way to some of the things we'll talk about, is the British Columbia New Democrats have found an interesting spot in um, politics in Canada. It is less sort of ideological in a way um, than the federal New Democrats or the New Democrats in the province of Ontario. It is much more a kind of pragmatic center-left politics. And I, I saw a poll this week, guys, I don't know if you saw it, the BC Liberals are down around 25% or something. And so, um, you know, that speaks ostensibly to a, a sense amongst British Columbians that things are, are going pretty well there. And it sounds like that's what you're experiencing on your trip. Well, they've had 45 consecutive days of sunshine. So that may be reflected <laughs> in the poll results. I don't know if, you know, they have that language at the end, you know, this survey is accurate, 2.4%, 19 times out of 20, and there's been sun for the last 45 <laughs> days. Um, anyway, I digress. Let's jump into our first topic, which has got to be uh, interest rates. There was a, another um, hike here by the Bank of Canada taking us to a 5%, a big symbolic 5% overnight rate. Um, I want to come to you first, Stuart, your, our proverbial... Um, homeowner in uh, suburban Ottawa with a, a newish house. Um, I hope I'm not revealing too many details about your financial affairs, but it's interesting. You've chosen in the last year or two to, uh, to purchase a new home, to move from one to another. I assume when you did that, you went through the whole mortgage rigor 
what are you feeling about this hike? Is it is it material to you? Is it just another hike and now a string of hikes that have gone on for the last uh, 14 to 16 months? Uh, love your on-the-ground perspective. Yeah, it, it is interesting because I think we you know, we've been really lucky. We bought our first house in 2019 and that was, you know, maybe the best time ever to buy a house considering the pandemic gains that we then used to buy a second house. Um, and we kind of got in on the interest rates right before all the big hikes started happening. I mean, it's higher than it was, higher than it would have been, but we have a pretty normal rate. Um, and I did, you know, this is the funny thing about all this is when we did ours, I kind of was considering, you know, maybe we're at the peak of the rate hikes now, and maybe I should do variable and kind of see if I could game that out. And uh, luckily I was, you know, small C conservative in how I decided to do it. Um, but I do wonder, um, we got in and we're good for a few years now. We don't have to renew. We're fine. So, so that's my question for you, Stuart. What's your psychology? Because I think this is where Tiff Mecklen and the bank has struggled a bit because of not in your case, but all these negative amortizations, fixed interest rate payments, people adding to their principal, not having their interest payments increase. And then, you know, the majority of mortgage holders are people like you with fixed mortgages, uh, almost three quarters. Are you starting at the back of your mind to think, oh, what would this mean if I had to renew in two to three years from now? with rates at this level or and it's fair enough is the perception amongst you and your peers hey look this is temporary we're at the peak of the cycle rates go up and down we'll be cutting soon and by the time it comes up for renewal i'll be back to if not great financial crisis covid style rates not five percent on the on the bank rate at the bank of canada yeah, I think that's right. What I think I'm kind of looking around, I'm pretty conservative about this stuff. So I'm probably not personally worried, but there is the idea of the systemic issues where you look around and you think, how is everybody in this suburb affording, you know, the, the what, like the F-150 and the house and the, the RAV4 and all that stuff? Cumulatively, that's, I think, a troublesome thing to look around. And then you think about all of these time bombs, the renewals that are coming up and people who haven't quite thought about this. And then the other time bomb is the banks doing their thing to avoid this, which is to do those negative amortizations and hold off um, maybe some foreclosures. So uh, the thing I think when I talk to people around me, we're wondering, is there going to be a bigger problem here? Are we going to be sort of getting collateral damage on a more structural issue in the housing market? Right, a bigger slowdown. Okay, Sean, let me come to you. You're a homeowner also. Um What's your take? Are you feeling these rate hikes? Are you kind of sanguine about this? Uh, and further to Stuart's point, it's kind of odd that the broader feeling in the country isn't one of like, holy crap, rates are at 5%. Like, you know, five alarm bell, we've got to pull in spending. You know, I got to say out here in Vancouver, Whistler, restaurants are full. Car rentals are hard to come by. Airline tickets were expensive as heck to get out here. I'm not seeing the effects of a 5% rate. Yeah, there's so much insight uh, in your observations, uh, Rudyard and, and Stewart's response. Um, only one third of households with mortgages have seen payments increase since the bank started its rate hike uh, in the first quarter of 2022 um, because of... of the significant number of people who bought homes in and around uh, 2020 on five-year fixed-rate mortgages. And so I think one of the reasons, uh, Rudyard, you're not seeing 
um, the rate hikes 10 now we've experienced in, you know, what, as you say, about 18 months or so, the highest rate since um, the beginning of the century manifests itself in that kind of household alarm is because it hasn't started to bite significantly um, yet. I'm struck yesterday, Roger, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this, um, the pushing back of the bank's projections that will right. be back to 2% until the middle of 2025 strikes me as effectively saying they don't know that that, that was an expression of uncertainty. But I mentioned that because um, we're, you know, it's possible we'll continue to see subsequent rate hikes. I don't know when we'll stabilize. Um, but Amanda Lang and I talked about this on a forthcoming episode of our regular biweekly series. Um, there's going to be a lot of people renewing in 2025, 2026. And at that point, um, the consequences of of these uh, rate hikes is is going to bite, and it's interesting to think about the impact on how on households and also the political economy of that. Because I'd be remiss if I didn't observe, all things being equal, we could be into a federal election in twenty twenty five. Yeah, no, the, the political calendar, I think, in a weird way, is going to get set by when mortgages reset. So, Stuart, if you're the liberals, you're kind of thinking to yourself, whoa. Is there a window here of the next six to nine to 12 months where an election looks potentially better timed versus waiting to the back half of 24, 25, when you start getting a lot of mortgage resets, the lag time, they always talk about the lag time on monetary policy, you know, starts to bite. All those things said, and I'll come to you, Stuart, for the political analysis here, but a final piece of the dismal science i'm just struck guys that 18 months of it, it's not just in canada but look at the united states you know the nasdaq is up almost 50 percent year to day um housing has remained resilient in canada the united states crypto has rebounded uh junky meme stocks are up 20 percent in the last couple of weeks I can go through a whole list of stuff, junk bonds and on and on. All these assets that were supposed to be sensitive to higher interest rates, um, in a sense, the alternative that cash isn't trash anymore. You can earn a risk-free rate of return of 5% right now in Canada, the United States. It seems to have had very little or no effect on broad swaths of the economy from a whole bunch of asset classes with the exception of bonds, but the job market is still resilient. I mean, I don't know. I, I'm dumbfounded as to if you'd said to me a year and a half ago, we're going to take rates to 5% and you know, the NASDAQ is going to be up 40% and every single asset class is going to remain resilient through by the end of that rate hike period. I would just say to you, you know, what are you smoking? But here we are 18 months later, and it suggests, I don't know, suggests to me that central banks have more work to do, that this cycle rates are not as as sticky as they normally are. And the only explanation I have and smarter people who I've talked to can think about is it has to do with deficit spending. You know, the United States government will spend $1.3 trillion in deficit spending this year. Canada on track, record deficits, despite really strong underlying economies. Same with Europe. 
we have monetary and fiscal policy working against each other. It is a bizarre moment. So I think we've got to say that nothing is normal about what we're seeing right now. And what worries me is that we're effectively, I don't know, we're effectively in a situation where the COVID level of spending has become normalized. And we don't have the excuse of the pandemic anymore, but it's demonstrably still happening. $1.3 trillion of deficit spending in the United States this year with unemployment at 3%. This is not Keynesianism. This guy's is like weird at weird, but modern monetary theory, it's still going on. This stuff hasn't ended. But Stuart, let's wrap this up with some ranked political speculation on how rates could affect election timing. Yeah, I think uh, if you're Pierre Polyev, um, you're in a target-rich environment right now. And they had a press release this week about bonuses at the bank. And I mean, this stuff, there's infinite number of things they can go after on this. And I, you know, I think everyone should read Trevor Toome on our on the hub.ca this here, week, here. instant analysis on the rate hike. And um, he pointed out, I think, like sort of imagining the psychology of the bank, which is they probably feel they were too slow to hike rates. And if you think about how they might err, because I think they don't know, I don't think anyone knows for sure, they might err on the side of one more hike or two more hikes um, than they should have, which means more chance of recession. And I I don't know what I would do. If I was in the government right now, I wouldn't be thinking, let's get to an election quickly. Um, I think you might be hoping you could weather a short recession. Um, you know, if it goes a little longer, you're probably in trouble. But I, I think right now, if you're Pierre Polyev, you're sitting on a lot of money. They had a big fundraising year. I think that will probably continue. You look at a lot of different scenarios and you feel pretty good about a lot of them. And if you're the government, um, I wouldn't see a lot of timing. Um, I wouldn't see a lot of good timing for an election for them. Yeah, just the related point I'd make, um, guys, is, uh, well, uh, Tiff Macklem walked a careful line yesterday. I think in the bank statement and his accompanying press conference, you could discern subtle criticism of government policy in a couple of key areas. The first is, is fiscal, as Rudyard says, one of the explanations for um, the sustained levels of consumer spending in spite of 10 rate hikes is, according to the Bank of Canada, um, the overstimulus that we experienced during the pandemic um, that has, in effect, inoculated households from uh, being responsive to uh, these series of rate hikes. The second is population growth. Um, the bank zeroed in on the kind of inflationary impact of the massive run-up that we've had uh, over the past 12 months uh, when it comes to uh, the Canadian population. And of course, the incongruity between that population growth um, and and housing construction. And so in both those ways, I'm not, I'm not claiming that... Um, that Tiff Macklem criticized the government. But if you were Pierre Polyev, you could certainly find ammunition to continue to make the case that government policy has uh, contributed to inflation and is um, leading to this sustained period of interest rate heights that, as you say, uh, Stuart, is more likely to, to continue than not. And madness, like, you know, grocery rebates. So, you know, a family of four can live on wieners for 30 days. Um, I guess if they had to, um, it's a weird moment, guys. I, I scratch my head, you know, you, you always kind of wonder like, 
how do we end up in these in these situations with a five percent interest rate, you know, a booming economy, low unemployment? And I think you have to go back to these big distortions that are out there. And my final point, Sean, would be it's not just the COVID savings maybe that people racked up. Those I think are starting to be spent down. Unfortunately, as people go deeper into debt to uh, deal with the higher rates, it's just this continuation, this stealth continuation, or I don't know, just a set of assumptions on the part of a lot of Western governments, Canada, the United States, Europe, that this higher level of fiscal spending, surprise, surprise, has an, a new set of rationale. I, you know, the latest rationale is not not the greening of the economy. It's you know industrial policy. So we're the Americans are spending a trillion dollars on a new industrial policy. Canada's trying to do the same with battery factories. There always seems to be another reason for government to engage in wild, large scale deficit spending for what is now year after year after year. And I think at some point. At some point, there simply has to be a reckoning. There's going to be so many bonds, so much debt being issued. It may mean that all of our mortgages three, four, five years from now are more expensive because you have to provide a higher yield on that debt to get people to buy it because there's simply so much of it. Well, time will tell. Let's take a quick break. Back on the other side, we're going to hypothesize about the next election. Are we on the verge of a constitutional crisis? The tea leaves would seem to say it's the direction the country's headed in. We'll have that for you right after this break. Hi, Hub Podcast listeners. Rudyard Griffiths here, the executive director of The Hub. Wanted to ask for your support today. No, I'm not asking for money. I'm asking for your attention. If you could check out right now in our podcast feed a new series that we're dropping. It's six episodes in partnership with a group called Pathways Alliance. This is the Canadian Industry Association that's tasked with the, the big, ambitious project of decarbonizing Canada's oil sands. They want to achieve net zero by 2050, and we want to have a conversation with them and you about how to achieve this ambitious goal. Pathways is the Hub's first national media and advertising partner. Their support helps us make all these other great podcasts. So if you're enjoying them, please listen to these episodes with Pathways. Give us your feedback. We'd love your input, but also share them with friends and family. That would be greatly appreciated. Well, with that advertisement over, let's go back to our regular programming. Welcome to the Hub Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, Executive Director of the Hub. I'm joined by Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, Stuart Thompson, our Editor-in-Chief. Okay, guys, we've done you know some writing at the Hub. I think actually Stuart did it, um, hypothesizing about what could happen in the next election where you end up with a scenario that one party, most notably the Conservatives, uh, win the most seats, but not enough to command an absolute majority in the House of Commons, and that the Liberals and the NDP, who are in this remarkable supply arrangement, together could combine to have more seats in total than the Conservatives and could, in a sense, under conventional uh, constitutional thinking, hypothetically, could demand, in a sense, the opportunity first to have uh, the chance to form government. 
since uh, Stuart's article, this idea has spread like wildfire through the punditry <laughs> class. So Stuart, kudos uh, to you. And I want to come, Sean, to you first. Why is this happening? What is the anxiety here? And just how real do you think it is? Because this would be a, a moment, maybe not a constitutional crisis, because we can talk about the constitutional argument as to why this would be valid for the Liberals and the NDP to do this. But boy, the national unity implications, uh, the uneven distribution of the subsequent uh, vote and the results in the House of Commons, that surely would be a big butcher's bill uh, for the country to pay if that scenario did in fact unfold. Yeah, that's that's exactly right, Rudyard. As you say, um, first of all, people ought to read Stewart's insightful piece, which Put on the table this scenario um that uh if you just look at polls today the most likely outcome is a conservative minority uh all things being equal and uh, in light of the the liberal ndp agreement and jagmeet singh's past comments that he could never work with a conservative government the a world in which the liberals and the democrats and possibly the bloc quebecois depending of course on uh, how the election shook out m could or may uh, attempt to uh, effectively uh, test the confidence of the House before even permitting uh, the conservative government, the conservative party, the party that in this scenario had won the most seats uh, from forming government and, and testing the confidence house itself. Last week, Andrew Coyne, the Global Mail columnist, uh, uh, wrote about this. Uh, this week, we have Eric Grenier from uh, formerly of the CBC and a, another online um, columnist uh, write about this scenario. And I, I must have, I must say, guys, uh, I think it's pretty crazy um, and a bit reckless, to be honest. Um, yes, of course, these writers can point to, you know, constitutional theory about the Westminster system and so on. But one of the strengths of the parliamentary system um, is the role that convention plays. And the truth is, we have a convention in Canada of um, permitting the party who wins the most uh, seats uh, to have the first opportunity to test uh, to test the confidence of the House. And I think breaking from that convention, um, based on the scribblings of academics and uh, opinion writers and so on, um, would represent, uh, I think, a pretty explosive post-election scenario. I'll turn it to Stuart in a minute, but one point I think worth emphasizing here is that the Conservative Party has won the popular vote in, in two successive elections, to have won the popular vote a third time, and even in that case, to win the most seats and not be given the chance to uh, form the government, test the conference house, I think would almost certainly precipitate uh, protests and, and so on. And the fact that it would uh, be a, a political crisis with a strong regional dynamic, because of course the Conservatives would have uh, a, a ton of support, per, per, likely the majority of seats uh, west of Thunder Bay, could precipitate the kind of national crisis, unity crisis that you're referring to. So, I, I think these, um, I think it's an interesting kind of academic debate. But were to play out in, in practice, uh, I think it would be quite reckless and irresponsible uh, on on the different players to actually kind of pursue this um, this mm -hmm. scenario. But Stuart, isn't I don't know? Is this like two-step honky-tonk that you know, yes they could have the right 
through convention, the right, the ability through convention to test the confidence of the House. But the problem remains if they get a minority, they could lose that test of confidence through a throne speech or whatever traditional mechanisms you'd have. And then it would be up to the then Governor General, uh, Mary Simons or whoever is in the role, to, to call on the leader that commands the majority of the members of parliament in the House, which is constitutional. Uh, convention and Justin Trudeau would support to a new supply arrangement with Jagmeet Singh and say, I command the majority of MPs in the house. So therefore I should uh, have the ability to form a government. And then we're off to the races again with um, a, a similar coalition style government in everything but name. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think if you were What's really instructive to me is the coalition crisis that happened um, in 2008, which was, you know, these parties all joining together and then Stephen Harper basically outfoxing them by using public opinion against the idea of the coalition. And I, I think that what will probably happen because we're having this discussion now, when we have an election campaign, the question every single day for Justin Trudeau and Jagmeet Singh will be, what are you guys going to do in this specific minority situation? And then I think the situation really changes based on what they say, because if they say, look, this worked pretty well, and if we don't win a majority, we might do it again. Fair enough. Uh, if they say we're gunning, because what they'll probably say is we're gunning for a majority because you don't want to look like you might be a loser. Um, if they say we're gunning for a majority, we don't want to talk about that stuff. Then I think it's a totally different situation. And I think at that point, you know, based on that discourse, you have to give the conservatives a chance because Sean's best argument here is what Canadians think. And Canadians think that the fair thing is for the person to win the most seats to test the confidence of the House. And I think even... Justin Trudeau, Jagmeet Singh will understand that. Paul Martin understood that um, when that happened to him, he, he didn't try and form a coalition. And partly that might be because he hated the NDP so much. And that's sort of the difference now in like the modern era. Um, but I think they will understand the political situation better than, you know, people writing in uh, in newspapers. Yeah, I would just jump in. I, you know, I, I just think also it's important to emphasize the importance of uh, unwritten rules in convention in our system. Um um, you know, the fact is uh, uh, that, that this practice has basically uh, um, been been upheld through a century and a half. There are a couple of small instances at the provincial level that um, that have been held up um, by proponents of this idea that they themselves don't even quite work. In the case of British Columbia, for instance, the, the incumbent, uh, the, the the party that won the most seats was given a chance to to first form government. Um, you know, I'm reminded, guys, of the Senate reference case. I don't know if you re recall that, where uh, the Supreme Court ultimately ruled that the federal government had the right, in theory, uh, to amend the, the Senate rules itself. But by convention, um, uh, required there was a requirement to, to, that the provinces be involved, that that requirement had effectively taken on a kind of quasi-constitutional character. And I, But Sean, I, let me let me pressure test you here a bit, because... Look, I, I think we'd all agree there's a lot of convention to say that Pierre Polyev um, should, if, they, if he wins a minority government, should the opportunity to come to the House first. But he's got to get a throne speech past the House, right? So could you, you – I could easily see a scenario where you, know, you have a Liberal Party and let's say the NDP together who would say, hey, guys, um, we can't support 
Pierre Polyev's conservatives were not voting for this throne speech and were uh, the choices are another election or um, someone else forms a government because this would be so soon after the last election, there'd be a lot of pressure by convention on the governor general to call on uh, Justin Trudeau to meet with Jagmeet Singh, to meet with the leader of the bloc and to see who can realistically form a working government, a majority of MPs in the House. And that arguably would be the liberal leader. Um, if we just project today into the uncertain kind of political future. So, Sean, I guess I wonder if there's a bigger crisis here, which is that in our first past the post system with an NDP and liberal party that further to Stuart's remarks have lost the Paul Martin, you know, your blue liberal differentiation from the NDP and have cozied right up against them politically and ideologically, can a conservative party and a conservative leader form government in Canada in any stable way, shape, or fashion for any period into the future? I mean, is conservatism as a political movement facing a much bigger crisis than just a constitutional debate, historical conversation about, you know, precedent and the unwritten elements of our constitution? Yeah, great question. And I promise I'll answer in a second, but let me just uh, respond <laughs> precisely to your scenario, which is to say it would be totally acceptable in my mind um, if after a conservative government was formed and, and, and failed to test the confidence of the House, mm -hmm. that the liberals and the Democrats could go to the GG and make the case that their coalition could indeed form a sustainable minority. That what, what has gotten my back up in recent days is the argument on the part of some of these pundits um, that they not even afford the, the winning party to do that. And that's what I think is most reckless. On your specific question, I think you're exactly right. Uh, you know, I It seems to me that since 2013, when Justin Trudeau became the leader of the Liberal Party, uh, him and his team have carried out uh, a, a deliberate strategy to effectively um, shift to the left, cannibalize the New Democrats, and um, either in practice or in or, or pardon me in, in substance or in practice uh, create a, essentially a two-party system um and in that scenario and, and the bad is a one party system yeah and, <laughs> and, and and the bad is um that uh, a, a center left or left wing mix of of parties versus the conservatives will win nine times out of ten you know uh and i, I think that's at least presently a, a correct bet um and you know as we've talked about plenty of times at the hub one of the biggest existential challenges facing center-right politics in canada is how do you uh raise the floor or the ceiling of support for center-right parties and we've had various attempts aaron o'toole had a kind of theory of the case that didn't work pierre polyev is pursuing a theory of the case um that at least in recent by-elections um, raises serious questions. Um, uh, so I, I don't dispute that that ultimately is the solution out of this scenario, that conservatives need to aspire to be a 50% plus one politics such that these kind of constitutional and uh, parliamentary questions are are less relevant. Um, but I, I, I just want to make this point clear. I, I think that we are starting to see uh, on the part of the pundit class, um, uh, the laying of the groundwork 
um, for a set of arguments um, that will have possible real relevance in the aftermath of an election. And I, I think it's dangerous and reckless and irresponsible. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll continue to make the case that um, convention tells us that whatever happens after uh, uh, the winning party tests the confidence of the House, they ought to be given um, the right to do so. Yeah. And I would look at the trucker convoy and say, look, there is a, there's a taste of what could happen if you, in a sense, said to everything west of Thunder Bay, you know what, you guys don't matter. Um, we're going to put together a coalition government. You're not even going to have a chance to come forward with the throne speech to articulate your agenda. Final question for you, Stuart. You know, historically, the Conservative Party at times has looked to the bloc to provide that additional quantum of support to deal with the threat of a, of a, a constitutional parliamentary attack from the left. Do we have a sense that, I don't know, that there could be the basis for um, something less formal, obviously, than the current liberal NDP supply arrangement, but something where the bloc and the conservatives would agree to each other? Because historically, you know, there is, especially I think Pierre Polyev's more reform style branch of conservatism, there's an argument around uh, decentralization of the federation, the devolution of federal powers that both the conservative party of this current type with this current leader and the bloc could conceivably, I think, find common ground on. And I sense in a lot of polls, at least recently, the bloc is starting to see better numbers. There are some issues that are agitating Quebecers vis-a-vis -vis the liberal NDP uh, coalition supply arrangement, most notably, you know, mass immigration. It's not popular in Quebec. Quebecers are starting to get worried about, um, the extent to which, you know, their culture, their power within the Federation is being eroded by mass immigration into the English speaking regions. Yeah, it's a great point, because the way that the math has to work for this scenario we're talking about to play out, it's very specific. And it would mean that the conservatives have to be first, then the liberals, then the NDP, and then the bloc. Um, so the bloc will have to suffer some losses for this scenario to play out. And one thing uh, that people mentioned to me when I was reporting that story in April is all the press is talking about the liberals and the NDP getting along together because they're governing. But there is actually a good relationship developing between the bloc and the conservatives. Um, it's not just these things can be ideological and there is ideological overlap, but a lot of it is just do your people chat together? Do you get along? Are, are things working well? Is there good communication back and forth? And um, that takes out some of the suspicion that arises in these situations. So I don't think that's totally out of the question. And I think that if you are motivated to govern, uh, you'll consider a lot of things and that might be one of them. Sean, let's give you the last word in this section. What what do you think could happen? I mean, I, I noticed that the conservatives supported the block motion. I believe it was a block motion on con condemning or criticizing the new century initiative, which is this is this group of uh, corporate quote, leaders who uh, run, you know, the banking, industrial, uh, real estate complex in the country who want to see the, the nation's population taken to, you know, 100 million by uh, the end of the century and are very supportive of this record levels of immigration that we've seen in excess of a million uh, entrants into the country in the last 12 months. 
again, there's an example, I think, of an issue where the conservatives and the blocs seem to be in sync with each other. Yeah, I, I think the challenge will be the liberals and New Democrats, as you said, I think so uh, correctly earlier, Rudyard, if necessary, would have no qualms about establishing a full-on functioning uh, coalition government with shared of the shared ministry, et cetera. Uh, I can't see a scenario where the conservatives would be prepared to go that far as opposed to simply working on a, a case-by-case basis, if for no other reason, you'll recall that the Harper government went pretty scorched earth back in 2008 um, during the coalition crisis about the prospect of a, a formal coalition with the bloc. And so in that world, if you're the governor general deciding which arrangement might be more stable, um, you know, it's it, it's it's possible that he or she ultimately turns to the to the liberals and new Democrats. But um, but if Pierre Polyev wins the most seats and forms a government and introduces a speech from the throne that nods to decentralization, as you said earlier, nods to um, a more constrained view about immigration policy. He could obtain enough support from the bloc to at least um, get out of that throne speech and start to implement an agenda. And in that world, it's possible now we're in the world of, of speculation. But maybe Justin Trudeau steps down as leader of the Liberal Party and they're thrown into a leadership race. And then the liberals themselves have to find a way to kind of prop up the government until they have a new leader, just as what's happened in 2006. The key, it seems to me, is once we have a government, uh, what happens next is unknowable. And where I think these voices are, you know, as I said earlier, maybe having an interesting academic discussion, um, but are being um, a, a bit reckless is that process needs to be allowed to play itself out. Short circuiting it, um, it, it seems to me, would throw the country into a bit of a crisis um, um, that, that I think would be um, more explosive than they seem to be prepared to accept. Yeah complete own goal. Um, that's how I see it. Guys, amazing roundtable. Thank you so much uh, for your time on this. The 14th of July summer is well underway. Let's enjoy it this weekend. We wish our Hub listeners all the best. We've got more reporting on the issues and ideas that we've talked about on this edition of the roundtable in next week's Hub. Check it all out at www.thehub.ca. Talk to you next Friday. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Friday Roundtable. I'm Rudyard Griffiths, the Executive Director of The Hub. I've been in conversation with Sean Spear, our Editor-at-Large, and Stuart Thompson, The Hub's Editor-in-Chief. This program was produced and edited by Amal Atar Guzman. You can access audio versions on our website at www.thehub.ca. And finally, you can subscribe to the Hub podcast feed on virtually any audio program. We've got all kinds of terrific conversations featuring some of the world's sharpest minds and brightest thinkers discussing the big issues and ideas transforming our world. Available right now for your listening pleasure. The Hub's podcasts are generously supported by the Ira and Maxine Granowski Gluskin Charitable Foundation and the Linda Frum and Howard Sokolowski Charitable Foundation. Thanks for listening. 